When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 57, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, hopefully I'm not sounding too ill on this week's show. You know when you just get the early stages of the man flu? Yeah, yeah, you kind of feel that lump in your throat. Yeah, and your nose is like a tap. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So if you hear a little splash on the desk the next oh, few God. minutes, that's me. I have got my very strong uh, Double Shot McDonald's coffee on the go. Oh, though, quality too, coffee there, yeah. I've got some um, spicy Indian tea here to kind of try and knock it out of my system. Which does sound a lot more healthy, if I'm honest. We should maybe swap glasses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I am going to soldier on with this week's show because we've got a good one this week. Now, of course, the way this show works is we come out every single Friday. Uh, Ravi and I run you through all the stuff that's been making the headlines in the world of retro. And then the second half of the show. I think, you know, I like the news stories and all that that we do. But the second half of this show is where, you know, we really come into our own, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And we get some amazing guests. And this week, you know, we've got a, a absolutely amazing guest. I haven't... I haven't really talked about Bits or Fun Bandits since the 90s. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of game show that's not been explored that well. And we've got Alex Kutrowski, who was actually one of the main presenters on there. And she also did the Virtual Revolution a digital human series on Radio 4, which yep. is coming back. Um, she works for the Guardian newspaper doing the technology section. So this is, you know, someone who's massively into tech. And it's a lady. Yeah, well, this was, I mean, if you um, cast your mind back, late 90s, early 2000s bits, it was on um, late night on Channel 4, wasn't it, when they had some pretty risque programmes on? Oh, yeah, what was it, Euro Trash as well they had? Um, <laughs> I forgotten about Euro Trash. <laughs> yeah, 11 o'clock show as well with Ali G, Booyaka Shark. Did you watch Euro Trash? Like, the volume really low, like, so your mum and dad could yeah. do what you want. <laughs> yeah. I think we all did that. Um, this lady wasn't on Euro Trash. Let's no. just put that out there. <laughs> no. Much, much more classy than that. Uh, but Alex, she was on that. Uh, yeah, it was Bits, which was the first, if I'm not mistaken, all-girl gaming show. Yeah, totally. They were all dominated by men before, pretty yeah. much in UK TV. So. And if, you know, this kind of came around, I mean, you know, the, the PS1 had hit its stride by then. Um, and she's kind of there, you know, the launch of the Dreamcast and the PS2 and that kind of came out mm-hmm. in that era too. And we're going to get her thoughts actually on, um, you know, how, how it was different from the earlier gaming shows. Because you think stuff like Bad Influence and Games Master, as good as they were, I mean, they were really for kids, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. This was for the, you know, coming home and having a couple of pints in a kebab yeah. crowd you know everyone that watched that show was drunk yeah. myself included <laughs> pretty much <laughs> so uh, we're gonna get the lowdown on bits thumb bandits all of those classic gaming tv shows with alex krotowski on the retro hour in around 20 minutes from now now we want to say a huge thank you if you listen to the retro hour every single week or you've just found us we really appreciate your support guys now there is you know lots of ways you can support the retro hour if you love what we do first one is actually by leaving a review on itunes yeah, and we've got some really funny ones, actually. As we're getting more reviews, they're getting funnier, you know? I think we've got about 57 or 58 at the moment. And the last one was saying, you know, this show's dangerous. It's very dangerous because you end up spending loads of money on tech <laughs> gadgets and goodies after listening. 
Yeah, I read the news stories we're doing, and I'm like, mm, I'll have to buy myself one of them. So <laughs> we've got a few more ways to uh, bankrupt you coming up in the next yeah, few Yeah, your, your Christmas <laughs> list gets uh, a bit big. <laughs> yeah, starting your Christmas list in February, that's when you know it. But uh, yeah, if you do listen to uh, the show on iTunes or any of your favourite podcast clients, your reviews always help get us up the chart and obviously, you know, give the show a little bit more credibility in the listings and all that. So we really appreciate any feedback as well. You know, it's just good to know what you think of the show. Yeah, yeah, like the Mars Click one. Last yeah, exactly. time, you know, so we're tra- good or bad effort. feedback, anything, yeah. <laughs> making an effort to be quieter on the mice now, yeah. aren't we? So, or, you know, you can leave a YouTube comment on SoundCloud, wherever you listen. Leave a little comment, just say hello. And the other way to support the show is, of course, by leaving a little donation through our website, theretrohour.com. Now, we have a little PayPal link on there, you know, obviously doing the show every week. We've got hosting costs, you know, all that's time the studio we do here. So um, if you ever want to leave a couple of quid on our website, theretrohour.com, click on the PayPal button, it'll take you two seconds. And we want to say a massive thank you to this week's supporters who enter the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And that is Eric Nelson. Tobias Saylor. Colin Walker. And Melissa Fay. Thank you so much for your donations this week, guys. It means lots and lots to us and helps us keep the show going. And if you want to get that link, it's at theretrohour.com. Okay, then, before we get into Alex Krotoski, let's get into this week's news stories. Now, it seems to be a little bit of a trend at the moment for, um, you know, actual hardware that kind of emulates older systems to be made into, like, you know, boxes that you can buy. But this new one that's just come out is a little bit different to the rest, isn't it? Yeah, this is a modular system. It's called Retroblox, and uh, we're going to link on Digital Trends. It's it's a system that you can kind of add different sections to. So if you want to, you know, run your original SNES carts in there, you can add this big block on the top yeah. and then, you know, stick your cards in through this interface. Or you can do CD-ROM support for games, and it's saying it's the 8-bit and 16-bit system, so... I don't think it's going to support stuff later on like the CD32. Yeah, like you said, I think the thing that I find interesting about this is the fact that it is modular. Um, you know what it kind of remind, reminds me of? You know, on the Mega Drive, you had that kind of power-based adapter that let you play um, yeah, Master right. System games. Yeah. like that, isn't it? You just plunk them on top and then it's kind of, I guess, the hardware's probably mostly in there, but this is just an adapter for the different types of cartridges to go in, isn't it? Yeah, the kind of base unit has an SD interface to... Um, USBs and a HDMI out yeah, and a CD drive on it. So I guess the top is an extra one for the carts or, you know, even if you had stuff on the SD cards, you could probably just load that in. And... Well, I mean, I'm looking at the um, the SNES, you know, interface they've got to go on the top and that's actually got the two SNES ports on there as well so you can play with the original controllers. Yeah, wicked. And it upscales everything to 1080p so it should look nice on a modern telly. And um, apparently they're looking at um, releasing this through a crowdfunding campaign in April, apparently. So they're going to be uh, doing like a Kickstarter. It looks really slick. Mm-hmm. Like the actual design of it, it looks very nice, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, it looks very tidy and it's um, it doesn't look cheap or anything like that. But obviously, these are kind of just um, mock-ups we're looking at on the website here. But yeah, nice could to be see some... 3D printed. <laughs> 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 I'm sure it'll be very nice. Yeah. But, uh, as soon as you get more information on that crowdfunder that's coming in April, definitely want to keep an eye on though. I just think the system is really cool. I mean, you know, emulation, you can set it up on anything like a Raspberry Pi or whatever. But I think there is something very nice about having essentially plug and play. Yeah, 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 especially if you're an old cart collector or something like that and you you just have a HD TV and you can't be bothered with all this conversion and stuff. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, things from days gone by, this is quite innocent. Actually, I posted something on our our Facebook page the other day. It was from Leisure Suit Larry. Oh, the uh, questions. (laughs) The copy protection at the beginning. Well, this is actually more of an age verification, wasn't it? Mm. And that was, you know, the little question that you get at the beginning that you had to, uh, you know... Run downstairs and ask your dad, Dad, I've got a question from a homework. You know, who was the president of America in 1950 or whatever? And then, you know, to get into the game, you had to know that. 
And obviously kind of copy protection in that era was um, quite innocent as well. And if you've ever got a bit nostalgic for it, I don't know who would, but we're talking code wheels. Oh, yes, code wheels. Dialer Pirate was the main one there. <laughs> Monkey Island, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that we always used to use. And uh, we would take them apart and photocopy them yeah. and then kind of recreate them. But you don't need to do that nowadays because there's actual digitized versions of the code wheels online that you can interact with. Now, this is on a website called oldgames.sk, and they've got Secret of Monkey Island, uh, Monkey Island 2, Pool of Radiance, Another World, Indiana Jones, and The Fate of Atlantis in there too, uh, Elvira 2, Waxworks. So what it is, you know, if you haven't seen these before, um, it was mainly a computer thing. You didn't get it with consoles. But you'd, you know, you'd open your box, get your floppy disks in there, a couple of manuals, and there'd be this, like, this colour wheel, and it'd have two sections, and you'd have to spin them round and line up the numbers into the little windows on there. And the game would say something like, you know, enter the number combination, or whatever, and then you'd have to just type that in the game to get into it, you know, to prove that you had an original copy. But on this website, they've actually recreated it, fully scanned, and you just click the mouse in the middle, and it spins round. Yeah, there's also, uh, I think you can do left and right on the keyboard as well with some of them. And it's, it's quite interesting, because also some games would have symbols yeah as well so you'd have to match the symbols or the pictures and it it was just it was a bit of a an extra step it just made it a bit annoying when you were copying games really and it's totally redundant because all of these games of course are cracked yeah and probably freely available but you know it's a nice piece of history and if you have got your original discs still and you want to play off them, if you ever want to get the, um, well, I'm looking at the Monkey Island one here. Do you remember Mix, Mix and Mojo, it was called? Yeah. To make voodoo ingredients. So if you want to know how to make a peg leg rot, that is a 58.55, <laughs> according to the code wheel. But yeah, I remember symbols, another world had them, didn't it, symbols? Yeah. But you're right. I mean, people that went out and bought the game had to dick around with these wheels. If you parrot it, you're just like bang, bang, bang on the keyboard and you're in, weren't you? Definitely. So, yeah, uh, yeah. There would always be a kind of shortcut or something. <laughs> As it generally is with copy protection, the people that went out and bought it legally get disadvantaged. The pirates are straight there. But uh, if you want to have a look at them, even for nostalgic reasons, you know, it's pretty cool. We'll stick those in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, there has been a bit of a trend recently for games that were kind of long cancelled and, you know, never actually made a release into the shops, actually getting leaked online. Now, I was actually looking the other day, um, something I saw on Reddit actually relating to this. Did you know that Half-Life was pretty much complete for the Dreamcast? Yeah, yeah. I I actually saw that. I, I watch a lot of Dreamcast kind of YouTube stuff. And yeah, they got really far, hadn't they? There was a guy on Reddit who posted, um, he's actually got what looks like a, a released disc that was sent to a magazine. And uh, it was the date on it was meant to be like two months before it was due to come out. So it was a very, very late beta of it. You know, he's basically ripping that now and you can download it. And some people are saying, you know, it looks like a feature complete version. Um, apparently there was a few glitches on it. But I think it's really cool when you kind of get to see especially when they're that close to release, like, you know, products that were worked on and then for whatever reason got cancelled. Yeah, like Putty Squad coming out and stuff like that. That's, it's really good. And these kind of games were like lost to memories, you know, people did promotions and stuff of them and then they never came out. So there's this like weird, oh, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of arguments I see on forums. You know, when you see like an advert for something and it mentions a platform on then, it never came out. Or yeah. like, Did it exist? Didn't it exist? And, you know, some of them have been raging for like 15 years. But 27 years later, the scrapped Spectrum version of Total Recall is now playable. Yeah, and, and what a film that was. <laughs> this, With I, Arnie. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if the game is as good as the film, but um, this seems to be a, a demo version. Now... This guy, Mark R. Jones, who's a graphic artist, he discovered a rolling demo 
uh, unplayable demo, of course. It was given away free on a Spanish gaming magazine. Okay. Called on the, on the Micro Hobby, yeah. Okay. And uh, after the demo was kind of shown, he put a video up of it. Um, he's contacted by this guy, Adrian Singh. And Adrian succeeded at hacking the game and making it playable. Wow, okay. So all the gameplay like, elements were in there. It was just disabled, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But they're saying, you know, it's susceptible to crashing. and It's, yeah. a, bit, it's a bit kind of buggy. But it does play. See, generally, when you got like a you know rolling demo, that was probably why. Because there was that many bugs in there. I thought, oh, you know, people can just watch it. Yeah, yeah. But but this is out there now, so you know, there's this playable version of the scrapped ZX Spectrum game. And I'm looking at it here. I mean, there is a video on YouTube that's embedded onto um, Eurogamer.net where we saw this article, and graphically, it does look pretty good. I think you know the colours. I mean, you know, a lot of Spectrum games kind of had these you know black and just one primary colour graphics. Mm. Um, like this is mainly um, yellow and black, the level that we're looking at here. But there is kind of the the bottom of it, you know, the hood that looks great colours and it looks really high resolution graphics actually for the Spectrum. It looks a little bit like Arnie as well, which in a lot of these games, the character would never look like the guy in the film, you know. You know speaking of Arnie, you know who's doing The Apprentice in America now? Oh God, <laughs> no, I didn't know he's, that. He's a host of The Apprentice and I was he just took it over. I was watching a clip of it on YouTube, I kid you not, okay. Guess what he says when he when a, a contestant gets fired? I'll be back. He goes, you're terminated. Hasta oh, la vista, baby. It's the most corny thing you've ever seen. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, got to love Arnie, though. Love Arnie. <laughs> so if you want to uh, check out this demo, it is playable on your specy. After 27 years, we'll shove that in our show notes this week as well. Now, the Raspberry Pi is obviously a platform we have had a, you know, a lot of affection for. We've covered it pretty much since day one on this show because it can be used for so many things, including education. Yeah, definitely education. And... There's there's a bit of a problem that's happening with education, and I kind of found this back in the days. I don't know if you did as well, Dan. Yeah. But um, the kids knew more than the teachers. I think it's always been the case, hasn't it? Yeah, so basically the Rab- Raspberry Pi Foundation has had to step up and get these teachers kind of trained up so that they can get to the knowledge of the kids. Right. So they've um, created a new magazine just for teachers uh, that's called Hello World. That's oh, nice. Kind of informing them all about the pie and you know, getting them on it. And I kind of remember, I used to go to school and I used to be like, oh, this is how you replace an icon and stuff like that. Just I used to draw icons and then replace shortcuts and stuff like this and make my own custom stuff, make early web pages. And I'd show my IT teacher hmm. and the next lesson would be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like, How do you what? do that again, Ravi? Yeah, you've stole the whole <laughs> lesson plan. You know? We did as well. I mean, I remember even at college, like doing stuff like Dreamweaver and all that. And like, you know, I kind of, I'd just sit late and pick it up myself. And then the teacher would be like, well, you know, let me just check. How do you do that again? Like come over and ask and stuff. And it was like... Yeah, that was it. I remember we did a whole lesson on how to make your own Angel Fire website because yeah. I just showed him how yeah, to yeah. do it. Yeah, I think I remember having a GeoCities website at school. Yeah, and I was showing that to my teacher. I think it was Icon and Icon Archimedes or something yeah. online. And like, like, what? What is this thing? But Animated I, gifts. You know, <laughs> I, you know, we used to like, you know, earlier in computer classes, we just play games and that in the corner. The teacher have no idea what we're doing, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Or we'd dial up. There's one machine that we had that was connected to the internet in oh, our no, computer the, lab at school. The worst thing, you'd just hear little tones. Because we'd all be downloading uh, 3210 ringtones and we'd all be programming them into the <laughs> phone slowly one at a time that's all we'd do it's polyphonic ringtones yeah, all over the room that was it. <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean i think this is really cool because again like you said I, th- I think kids do just generally you know your mind i guess is, is younger than it absorbs stuff a bit more like a sponge when you're a kid isn't it totally just pick things up easier i mean one of the things i've always regretted is not really learning how to code properly when i was a kid you know and so, well i started to but i kind of didn't stick with it and i think you know look at it now and it's just like 
I imagine it's probably a lot harder to pick up as an adult than it is as like a seven year old. Yeah, I was doing like PHP and stuff when I was like seven and yeah. eight. And I was just like, what? <laughs> well, I found um, a bunch of old tapes, you know, that I did on my computer, like my Commodore when I was a kid. And they were like, you know, crappy games, but I did them all in basic. And, I, you know, I actually looked through these for the first time in like, God knows what, 25 years or whatever. Did the listings of them. And like, I'm looking at like, I don't know any of that now. How, yeah. how I did it when I was a kid, I've got it no idea. It was crazy. I remember I used to do HTML versions of sites, yeah. but then WAP versions as well, which was WHTML, yeah. which would work on early mobile phones. Like, on the way, know, yeah. On WebOS or yeah, yeah. something, yeah. God. But yeah, I mean, even yeah, first websites I did, I used to code them all in Notepad and then, you know, just upload them onto GeoCities or whatever, you know, FTP. But it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the modern world, I mean, everything's kind of point and click now, so it probably makes it, you know, I have to learn it all, but. I don't know, though. Kids might just be able to jump into it and still do that. You know, they're, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind so of what they can do, kids. Teachers, get up to the standard of kids. Come on. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Buy it's this been magazine. long enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of uh, people that are geniuses and can make their own stuff, what about this? An open source Amiga accelerator. Yeah, this is crazy because I tell you what, in the Amiga world, there is not a lot of stuff that's open source. So this it's is great because it means people can kind of all get involved in the project. They can make their own version. They could probably make improvements on it. And we'll talk about it. And uh, this guy, I don't have much details on him, I'm afraid. I just found him on YouTube. And his yeah. uh, YouTube name is Terrible Fire. Well, Stephen Leary, his name is. He actually contacted me on Twitter to tell me about this. And oh, only, cool. he's going to send me one, he said, when it's ready. We want. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what, for the Amiga 500, I think the first one he's working on. Isn't yeah, it? it's an O3O accelerator. Accelerator. And um, it's all open source. He's kind of made the boards himself, got them printed. You know, he's got a really nice series on it um, where he's going through his process of making it. So, you know, he'll make mistakes at some point. It'll be like, oh, the tracers will be better here. Get the board reprinted and stuff. But he's really, you know, going for it. And I think he deserves a lot more attention yeah. than he's got. You know, this is a pretty major project. I'm looking at this video here, you know. it's um, It's been up for a couple of weeks. It's got 500 views. And yeah, I mean, you know, you're right in terms of like news coverage and that. I haven't seen it on many forums or anything like that. So, and this is pretty big. I mean, it's even got stuff like um, booting from hard disk support and all that included. Yeah, in he it was too. talking about FPU, putting yeah. FPU support in and stuff. It's like, wow. And really, if you're talking, you know, an accelerator card, if you're not familiar with the MEGA terminology, that basically, you know, increases the speed, gives you, a, you know, a high level CPU in your machine lets you run stuff faster, gives you more memory. You know, this includes hard disk support, so you can install all the games on a mm. compact flash card, for example. But really for the Amiga 500, the only option that you've got at the moment is one of those, um, you know, the cards that slot on the side yeah. from individual computers, and then you put an Amiga 1200 accelerator on. But, you know, by the time you've clocked all that, I'd be talking probably about 600 quid. But also that. a lot of these companies that were producing the old accelerators, they basically went bust. Yeah. And it meant that all these accelerators were ridiculously expensive. So... Having an open source one is just such a good idea. Because in recent years, obviously the Vampire is now for the Amiga 500, mm -hmm. and you've got stuff like the individual computers, accelerators and that too. But again, I mean, you find a lot of the time, like you said, the older ones, they've kind of gone off the market, they were closed source. So people are just reinventing the wheel over and over and over again, aren't they? And the thing is, a lot of them, it's not like they're cooperating either. So, yeah. you know, it's all kind of a bit separate. And this is a this seems like a good effort where everyone can get involved and... Get a nice O30 accelerator for the 500. Yeah. So, could you build your own? Oh, God, no. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Pay someone to build it for you. Pay though, someone yeah. to yeah. build it for me, yeah. <laughs> so, if you want to check out that video, I mean, his series of videos are so interesting, actually. Just from, like, you know, 
even though I've got no idea what he's talking about, most of it, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. Wish yeah, I, if wish if, I was if you start from the beginning, <laughs> eh, you, you start to get an idea. Yeah. And, and you know, you start to see where he's making mistakes and you learn a lot more. I watch loads of videos of people soldering and doing stuff that far beyond what I know. Yeah. But you start to learn it and pick up stuff and, oh, yeah, that works like that, you know. Well, there is, you know, there, there are some really interesting videos. Like, have you seen um, EEV blog? No, no. Um, David L. Jones, guy from Australia, he just like gets old machines, you know, that are completely destroyed with like batteries leaking and all that. And he's he's got like you know all this stuff in his garage. And I can watch his videos for an hour, and he's just like ripping down all the components and getting the traces off the motherboard and redrawing them with like metal pens and stuff. It's like it's nuts. Oh, I love so. stuff like that. Yeah, retro games mods. He's really good because yeah. he just does long ones about Amigas. Yeah, I've seen that. And uh, Chris Cochran as well, mm. who's uh, quite a small YouTuber, but. I think his stuff's fantastic because he covers all this stuff like little FM transmitters and radio kits and, you know, all these really tiny, small devices. Yeah, yeah, they're always cool. So, uh, yeah, if you want to check out that open source Amiga accelerator, which I think, you know, definitely got potential to be um, kind of the de facto accelerator for the A500. Yeah. And hopefully other models eventually will ship that in our show notes as well. Right, thank you very much for checking out episode number 57 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from all of your favourite podcast clients iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you know, uh, YouTube, wherever. Everywhere. Can't escape us. <laughs> so, of course, leave your review if you do. Uh, check us out on any of those platforms. And uh, you can download it next Friday again from our website, theretrohour.com. Right then, time for this week's special guest. We're going to talk about bits. Alex Katroski. On the Retro Hour. And we'll catch you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest. Thank you for joining us. No problem. No problem at all. So we'll start with a question that we love asking. Where did it all begin for you then? What was your first ever experience with a computer? It was probably with my dad. Um, In fact, I'm almost positive it was. I remember distinctly, uh, we lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and down the road in Gonzales, Louisiana. Um, Actually, no, I don't think it was even Gonzales. I think it was like... God, Prairieville or something like that. Um, Dad used to do his his laundry at the laundrette. And next door was this newfangled thing called an arcade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and inside the arcade were these tall boxes that were full of these sort of glorious sounds and the, these amazing flashing lights. And I remember the very first time I played Pac-Man, um, you know, of course, I couldn't even see the screen. I think I had to be held up. And I ran, you know, I was told to eat the ghosts. And so I I followed directions and I promptly ate the ghost. And of course, it wasn't the right time for me to eat the ghosts. They ate me. And then I got despairing and I moved over to Centipede and to Frogger and became masters of them and left Pac-Man to the professionals. So was it seeing those games and those sounds and those amazing vibrant graphics? Did that really get your imagination going as a kid? Well, yeah. And to be honest, it wasn't like anything else that I'd seen. You know, I was reared on Sesame Street and all those electric company and, and U.S. sort of morning television shows. And this kind of thing was super, super interesting. Dad and I used to play text adventures. That was one of the things that we loved doing. And, you know, subsequently after, after arcade stuff, um, you know, we had a 2600 and played on that in the you know good old boxy graphic days. And, and we had the, the, the more um, sophisticated text adventures that, you know, came on CDs and you had to have a computer for them. And so this kind of interactivity was really exciting. I was a complete bookworm 
right? I would, I would, you know, I was told that I had to stop reading at times because I was tuning out of family conversations. And I, you know, I lost myself in the imagination of, of those things. But when it came to, when it came to the games, it was really exciting. I, I, I reveled in the, the, the relative restriction of them. You know, you had boundaries and you had to act within them, but what you did inside of the boundaries um, was totally up to you. And that was kind of neat, figuring your way out through these worlds. Well, I guess, you know, early text adventures were essentially just kind of, you know, interactive adventure stories, really, weren't they? Like books on screen. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And it was things like, you know, it was the natural progression of the choose your own adventures. Um, really delightful fun. Just so much fun to kind of make your way through, figure out what was going on. And that was properly using your imagination because you just, you, there was no vision. You just kind of had to use your memory and, and hold everything in there and, and know that if you went down that way, then you had to make a left because, you know, if you made a right, there'd be the angry grew. And that, that was great because you, you did have to paint the pictures with your mind. And uh, what were your kind of favorite text adventure? Oh, I honestly cannot remember what they were. Um, I just know that we would play them on the on the green green letters on black screen, at, like <laughs> at my at my dad's work. And dad worked in a he he was a he was a physician and a, a research scientist, and so you know he had access to to these crazy things called computers. As well as to like, oh, actually, <laughs> I'll tell you what my very first interaction with the computer was, was um, this, you know, this, this gigantic machine that filled the room would, would create art. It would create something that was called your personalized birthday graph. And I still have the personalized birthday graph that my dad made for me. So these magical devices, you know, that, that they were able to kind of produce things out of thin air, that was remarkable. But the interactive stories, the interactive storytelling was 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 even more compelling because it wasn't just something that was like pretty colors spit spat out of the machine, but it was also tails and, and all kinds of stuff. I honestly cannot for the life of me remember what any of them were called. I remember one of the ones that we had at home was you had a, there was a rock that you could hold like a physical thing. Cause back in those days, you know, as text adventures and, and computer games became more popular, they needed gimmicks in order to sell them. And, you know, all you could really sell them on was the was the back of the cardboard. And and as marketing became more sophisticated around them, they started to add little gimmicks. One of these gimmicks was this rock that you could hold. And it must have been some kind of heat-sensitive thing, and it was part of it. And at one point, you had to, like, you had to hold the rock, and it would, you know, it would if it turned a particular color, then, you know, it it did a thing and you fed that back into the machine um but i can't remember what that one was called either <laughs> had a magic rock in it though that's that's a first it was a magic rock <laughs> it was amazing um did you have any kind of early online experiences at all with any bbs's or anything like that i never did that in fact a friend of mine um in high school was the first person who ever mentioned the word bbs to me and i remember which is with great irony um at that time thinking what on earth are you doing why are you doing that isn't there a wonderful thing that you could be doing called offline world little did i know of course that in my future what i would end up doing is i would end up studying online worlds um so i never actually went on to any bbs's uh, another friend of mine in high school was also very active and she but she was also my total sort of gamer friend she would we would play atari you know, not atari we would play Super Mario Brothers for for hours and hours and hours, um, and she went on to them. But it wasn't it wasn't until oh, what was my first experience with them? It was really through Isabel that I discovered that even things like list serves existed. Um, my relationship with the computer was a bit more advanced um, than what was going on in the UK because we were using email um, in college. 
quite uh, much more frequently. And so I know this because I spent my my junior year abroad at Glasgow University. I, I did my undergrad in the U.S., but but I had one year in the U.K. and we already were using sort of personal computers. Um, we had really big um, computer labs at, you know, in the library and, and various other places around the campus. And, you know, we had email addresses. Whereas when I first went over to Glasgow Uni, it was really difficult to find the computer lab and there were like four computers in there and you had to wait for like four hours to get on them. So the the, the saturation of digital technology um, as, a, as a real kind of consumer space hadn't tripped over um, quite as much as it had done in the U.S. We're talking around 1994, okay? So I had just taken a class in the World Wide Web <laughs> at my college, you know, how to navigate it, what it was. Um, and so that's the era that we're talking about when I when I first came over um, to the U.K. So when the web came along then, how long did it take you to get absorbed into that world then? And did it eventually, you know, change your life? Well, the first time I... You know, I actually thought of it as something that wasn't just running water, you know, that it was something unusual was when I took this class on the World Wide Web. I'd already taken a class on um, how to search the library as part of the, the required things that you did when you went to college. You had to learn how to use the library. So I understood Boolean searches and things like that. So I was pretty good with that. But but it was it was really quite revolutionary to know that I could go online and find stuff. At the time, it was not particularly useful. It was taking, you know, it would take hours for pictures to load up. And all I really wanted to do was look at pictures of Jarvis Cocker, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and it was just, it took forever for anything to happen. So it was actually a lot easier to go and find the articles that I wanted to get that I needed to read for my classwork and go to the photocopier and, and photocopy them rather than actually look for them on the World Wide Web. It wasn't until, and of course, then, you know, I got into it, it became more sophisticated. Um, and, you know, the, the evolution happened so that it once again became like running water as it is, you know, as it is now. But it wasn't until I went back for my master's degree, which was oof, probably about eight or nine years after I graduated from my undergrad, um, that I really recognized what an astonishing, astonishing turn of events had happened, particularly in the education space. In that eight years, I had made bits. And so I, w- I recognized that, um, that, you know, there was sort of other things that were going on online, you know, whether it was community building and all that, all that stuff that I ended up studying in my master's and my PhD. But it, for me, the biggest transformation was the, the amount of content that was available that I could access as a student um, from anywhere in the world. And that was super exciting. Yeah, you'd always get those big encyclopedias on CD-ROM and stuff <laughs> and like that yeah, before, totally. yeah. Totally, which seems hilarious now. But I mean, this is just even being able to type in like a search term or a Boolean search and having academic research you know, articles coming back and of course, being in an institution, I was able to access them. The firewall, you know, op- was open for me, and that was that was amazing. It also meant, though, that like in terms of personal transformations, that was really when I started to think, well, I can access anything. What do you mean you're going to stop me from accessing that? It should be free. It should be it should be available to me. All the world's knowledge is right here at my fingertips. Why do I have to pay? Or why do I have to go to the British Library? Or why do I have to you know why do I have to fly to the U.S. to get this book? And that is you know that's a super interesting phenomena did you connect the kind of gaming culture and the online world did you think that that was gonna come together i did not 
I did not. Now, I remember <laughs> back when we were doing bits, um, being most impressed, like there was all the hype around particular games and, oh, isn't it exciting? This thing's coming out and this thing's coming out. But for me, the thing that really impressed me beyond all the hype was the Dreamcast because the Dreamcast was such a, it was so forward thinking. It, you know, it, it was redundant before it even started because nobody, people were just not ready for what was possible. You know, the fact that you could play games connected to the internet was like really quite remarkable um, to, to anybody who wasn't already involved in, you know, the, the, uh, the online gaming scene or the online scene at that time. And just to have it in, in a format that was so accessible to the general public, you know, to have something, a box in your front room that was connected to the TV that, oh my goodness, it's what it's connected to other people. And when I'm pay- when I'm playing Choo Choo Rocket, other people are you know building things and I can play. That's amazing. You know, and then the idea, the concept that you could take the little doohickey out of the controller and you could take that with you and you could play with your creature and then put it back in. And it was like this sort of symbiotic, always on experience. That was so interesting to me and everything else just kind of paled by comparison. So I was, I was never, I was never the person to, to get particularly excited about a new release because, you know, new releases come and go and there's so much hype around it. But for me, that was, that was the innovation that I was most excited by. Well, you mentioned bits and uh, did you watch any of the older, like, you know, computer and gaming shows like Bad Influence or Games Master when they were on? No, because those were before my time. Remember, I arrived in the UK in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there for a year and then went back to the US, finished off my undergrad and then came back out in 1997. I moved tail end of 96, beginning of 97. Um, and I was making radio for the BBC, ironically, uh, BBC Scotland in sort of 98 before, before Bits came along. So I I didn't know anything. I literally didn't know anything about the previous, about the, the prior games programs because I simply wasn't in the country for them. Well, how did the idea of Bits come, come around then and how did you get involved? That was not my idea. Um, one of the one of the few things in my career that I haven't that I that I wasn't involved in the in the idea process. Um, I had been working at the Glasgow Film Theatre, which is an independent theatre in Glasgow, as it says on the tin. And I was obsessed with cult movies at that point. I didn't really know what it was I was going to do with my life. I just kind of dropped everything in the U.S. and picked up and moved back to the U.K. because hey, that was where I was going to spend the rest of my life. And it turns out that you know. For most of the, for most of that, it's true, um, but I didn't really have a plan. Plans were for grown-ups. I was, I was just fresh out of college, and so I kind of landed. Didn't really know what I was going to do with myself, but found a real passion in cult movies and cult movie cultures, and was writing a little bit for for um, magazines like SFX and you know the the odd um, those the the odd movie magazine. I was also at the same time uh, volunteering, as it were, at the BBC. And I got, I saw, I think because of the BBC, a call for presenters for this new cult video program. And that became a program on four later, which is the, the, the sort of the channel that bits was on in the, in the late nineties, early two thousands, a sort of strand on, on channel four that became a program called vids with Nigel and Steph. Now I'd known Nigel already for uh, weirdly for a long time. Um, and Steph was a, was a new recruit, but by the time I went along, they'd kind of already decided that 
that they were going to have two guys do it. They were still casting around just to see if anybody new would come along, but they decided that they were going to have two guys. But somehow I made an impression uh, on them and they phoned me up and said, are you interested in, in doing a program about computer games? And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> or what else am I going to do with my time? And so I went in and they asked me about my knowledge of computer games, of which I certainly didn't have the knowledge that I have now, but I had enough. Um, and they gave me the gig. They, they, did a, they did a test to see how I worked with Emily Dunn, uh, who was still one of my closest friends. And, uh, and that was sort of how it worked. We just kind of bounced around for the next four years and and yeah, it's, <laughs> to be honest, it all seems like a dream. <laughs> such a strange, such a strange moment in time. What a weird thing to do in your twenties, but also the best thing in the world to do in your twenties as well. It was a lot of fun. It was a uh, yeah, as you said, it was a real weird time because it was where gaming had just kind of got cool, and especially yeah. that four later slot was kind of you know everybody coming home from having a kebab or a drink <laughs> and then pretty much sit and watch gaming. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. That was that was our target audience. And we knew that, of course. Um, and what was really weird is that as its success continued, they started to see where else we could be placed. And they decided to commission a, a, a Saturday morning version of this, which I remember was preposterous because we would basically have to record two completely different programs uh, because one obviously was not uh, appropriate for the Saturday morning <laughs> audience. Um, so yeah, that, that was, it was a really, it was a really interesting time. Um, it was, you know, I, I eventually, you know, I eventually wanted to, to go off and, and do academic pursuits. And every time I tried to leave, every time I tried to, to sort of leave the program and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go off and, and sort of really explore this more deeply, something would draw me back. And I think part of it was that it was the zeitgeist. Like I remember sitting in the gym one day and like sitting on, I don't know, a bicycle or something like that and staring at the TV thinking, that's it. I've just got to leave. I'm, I need to go and, and pursue this dream of mine. And I remember seeing, I kid you not, I remember seeing a tampon ad and the tampon ad was about a woman basically doing kind of SSX style, like riding this tampon through this half pipe. And it was all computer generated. And I was just looking at it going, that's like a computer game. Like there's no way before this moment in time there would have been like a tampon ad <laughs> that would have that would have been about you know would have obviously been influenced by a computer game so that that kept me back weirdly that that funny old tampon ad kept me back because i was like there this is something that's happening right now and it, it's really interesting how it's starting to just properly get its tendrils into the zeitgeist and and i just want to see where it goes from the inside rather necessarily from from watching it as a as an observer as a kind of british audience it was great because um before we'd had lots of boring old men in jumpers talking in the 70s yeah. and then later on we had a few kind of shows with like dominic diamond and sarcastic people but we never had a kind of full female cast leading a computer game show so it seemed totally fresh then that absolutely and and I still maintain that we didn't have a clue what we were doing. I mean, frankly, nobody had a clue what we what we were doing. Not the production team, nobody had a clue. We were literally just playing around, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and the fact that it was three women, absolutely, that was bizarre. Um, but it was also around the same time as you know we were. You saw that type of thing on on different places, particularly on Channel Four. You started to see those sort of all girl crews. I 
having not really witnessed what had come before, didn't really realize um, what the significance of that was. And, you know, it's really over been, been over the last 20 years is I still get phone calls. I still get people wanting, you know, wanting to chat with me about computer games. I still get every day, every single day, somebody pings me on Twitter and says, are you that girl off bits? It's like, wow, that happened like a lifetime ago. It really had an impact. It had such an effect. And I think for the reason is, is that we weren't, we weren't taking the piss out of the people who were watching, you know? And I, I think we, we all just kind of respected the fact that they were here, they were now, and let's just treat it like a cultural form. That's something that I've always done in my entire career has been like, right, let's just stop othering this thing, this thing that people think is something that's other. And as soon as we just start treating it like it's just part of the furniture, then rock on, then we can actually get somewhere. And I think just by that very baseline, it wasn't just the fact that we were women. Sure, that was a good draw, right? The fact that it was called bits, you know, said something about what, <laughs> what the intention was of the of the original of the original pitch to the commissioning editor. But I don't think that they they realized what they were going to get. And that was, you know, actual, actual analysis through the medium of, of, of reviewing computer games. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't want to sound too ridiculous <laughs> saying that. Well, the locations were always an interesting choice as well. I mean, how, how much kind of, you know, thought and conversation went into those? It'd be like, you know, Virgin Megastore and Girls' Apartment and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Even on the street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know it was filmed in a hospital, don't you? It was yeah, it, uh, it was, an old mental asylum or something. <laughs> well, sadly it wasn't. The only the only bit of the of the hospital that was still in use was the psychiatric ward as far as I recall. But yeah, it was it was filmed, sorry, it was filmed in a hospital um in Glasgow. Um at least that was for a couple of the series. I think we filmed it in another hospital somewhere else. I'm trying to remember how many hospitals we used. And once once we just filmed it like in some closets upstairs from you know from from where the offices were. Um the the real genius behind the the various locations were the directors. You know, we had some amazing directors. Um and one of my favorite things was the conversations that the directors and I had as we were developing what each of the segments were going to be, um, you know, cause we would be, we would play the games and then, you know, three or four days later we'd get a phone call cause it was such a fast turnaround. We literally had a week to make each of these programs. So, you know, it was like, we'd get the games, we'd play them for two days. We'd have our conversations with our, with our directors. We'd be filming the next day and then it would be in the edit and then it would be out like the next day. It was such a fast crazy fast turnaround. I can't even make a podcast in that, in that space of time. Like it's so quick. Um, so, you know, we get the phone call from our director and then we just talk around it. We'd be like, so, you know, what was it? Okay. It was a shooter. Okay. Where was it located? Okay. It was located in an underground bunker. Okay. Who were the main characters? Well, there was a pig and there were three dolphins and uh, a, a witch. Okay, fine. Which was your favorite character? I probably like the witch the best. Okay, brilliant. Now, who's going to play the pig? Who's going to play the dolphins? And who's going <laughs> to play the witch? And that's basically how we got to it, you know, or like, you know, is, was there anything, was there anything that you noticed in the plot that, you know, that, that is completely separate to, to what anybody would notice on, you know, on the surface? Oh, yes, it happened. There was one section that was underwater. And there was a tea party with Alice's, you know, Alice in Wonderland's tea party thing. But it's a shooter. I know it was completely bizarre. It was a total throwaway. Right. We're going to do this as an Alice in Wonderland tea party. Brilliant. And then we just do it and we just had to do it. 
Um, and that was kind of that was kind of how it, <laughs> how it happened. It was literally free association and oh shit, we have to get this done tomorrow. Brilliant, let's just do it. Okay, it's done. Well, um, here's a little bit of perspective for our listeners as well. Simon Pegg from Space said, um, <laughs> when, when you said on your bio that Space was his favorite show, he knew it was getting big. <laughs> so. I'll, I'll tell you what, the, possibly the greatest moment of my life was um, I spoke with him. Uh, I spoke with him a few years later for a for another uh, thing that I was trying to do with him. And uh, I said, oh, my name is blah, blah, blah. And I used to be on this television program called Bits. And he goes, oh, my God, of course I know Bits. And I'm like, oh, really? That's really funny. <laughs> and then he goes, um, and you know what else? When Jessica and I were writing the character of Tim, we decided that you were you were Tim's favorite Bits girl. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really funny. <laughs> And it was like the <laughs> proudest moment of my life. Like I was literally floored. It's still, you know, that's going to go on my epitaph. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt pretty proud of that one. I just like to to even like that's 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 the nice thing about having done something like that. And that that's you know the good reason for for having stuck with it is you know, spaced is is one to me one of the the greatest British comedies. I think it's it's amazing. But to have to even have played like the the most sort of footnotish role in such a, a sort of seminal piece of, of British cultural history. I'm, I'm deeply proud of that. Was there any feature in Bits that was your favourite that you always look forward to? I mean, the thing evolved so much. We had something like 14 series. It was insane. We did so many. And each series is six episodes. So that's a hell of a lot of series, a hell of a lot of programmes that we did. And they really did evolve. They really did transform you know, the, there were no kind of set pieces, I, you know, and it's been a really long time since I've watched any of them. Um, I think the last time was about 10 years ago. Been a while. If, yeah, really long time ago. What year is this? God, more than 10 years. God, more than 10 years ago. My my old producer sent me just randomly out of the blue. Uh, Aldo sent a bunch of, a bunch of, like all of them on DVD. And, and uh, Emily Newton Dunn was coming to visit. And we were like, oh, my God, do we dare? <laughs> do we dare? And we sat down and we watched the first one and we're like, no. And then, and I think it was the pilot. And then we watched, um, which was brilliant, Emily doing this amazing review of FIFA 99. And then we watched some random one in the middle. Uh, and I think that's, frankly, the last time I even dared to look at any of them. But because the technology industry moves so quickly, I mean, 10 years, looking back, it looks like, you know, historic now, doesn't it? Even though a decade in like other kind of cultures is not that long. Well, FIFA 99, is. Yeah. this is 2017. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> We're talking almost ago, 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, it did, it did look pretty different then. Um, yeah, and, you know, the, one of the reasons I eventually, I eventually left um, doing anything to do with computer games is that I just saw them as really stagnant, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, I'd been, I'd, you know, I'd been working with them sort of around them from, you know, for, for a full decade. And I just, I found myself getting really frustrated by people's attitudes to them and also attitudes about what was considered good from within. I didn't really see any innovation. Now, granted, I did sort of, I did leave before indie gaming finally took off. I was sort of watching that scene like a hawk and it just felt like it was going to be a damp squib. But, and I, and I understand from many people that, you know, it really, it really has been a revolution and it's been, it's been great for the industry, but I just found it quite samey. And and nothing really ever moving forward. So um, so yeah. I, I, so in some ways, the technology itself 
means that the stuff looks really bad now, looking back 20 years. But I bet you there are some, I mean, I bet you the games are, except for some bells and whistles, your sort of AAA games are probably pretty similar to those things that I reviewed 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? When there's more investment to put into it now and every company wants a game to be a success, you know, there's not many risks taken anymore, I guess. That's it. And that was that's something that, that I just really felt I felt kind of sad about because mm. I thought there was such an opportunity. And I also found that the games industry was very, um, very closed off. I knew that there were a lot of people from the from the internet space, the, the web development space, who were super interested in what was going on and the types of innovations, not because they wanted to steal them, but because they thought perhaps, you know, conversations about what they were doing and, and what the games industry was doing would, would create better stuff for, for both industries. But the games industry, people were like, well, why do we want to know that? They just want to find out about our stuff. And the internet, people were like, no, we thought you might want to know about our stuff too. Okay, never mind. And so, you know, I think that that, that was also, that was a feature of then. I don't know about that. I don't know about now. That was like, seriously, that was 2000 and, 2006, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, around that time. And that was a long time ago. Well, how did Bits come to an end then? When did you know it was going to finish? When we stopped getting commissioned. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was kind of a surprise for us all. Um, It had been doing well. It had been doing well. It had been doing well. But I think that the commissioning editors just wanted something a little bit, something different, something that wasn't the same. We We weren't privy. We weren't party to those conversations that were happening behind the scenes so we were just kind of toddling along as it were but yeah it just you know I think we were all ready to do something else Emily Dunn was ready to get actually behind the scenes in the games industry and start making games Emily Booth wanted to go back to her first love which was cult movies and I was desperate to get into academia so I think you know it had run its course it did the job it opened up our eyes to all kinds of cool things and it opened the doors to a lot of really really interesting opportunities later um but yeah, I think I think it had, it had done its course. But again, every day on Twitter, I get somebody asking if we're going to have a reunion. And I'm like, you know what? You really don't want to see me in a tight T-shirt anymore <laughs> covered in fake blood. Like, you know, a 40-year-old, a 40-year-old woman is not quite the same as a 20-year-old woman. Well, um, I, I was a big fan of Late Night at Channel 4. And I um, awesome. remember a documentary called Fun Candy, which was done by Ian Lee years ago. That's right. And that's right. That's that, right. That's right. I had that on tape, and it was just worn out that tape because it was had so many fantastic interviews. How did that's Fun true. Bandits come around? Well, it was because of that doc. I completely forgot about that doc. That was a really, really, really good documentary. Well, Ian was really interested in games, obviously, because um, he wanted to make that documentary and. Uh, the success of the 11 o'clock show, which was the satirical news program at the time, um, was it, it was, it sort of launched him and he wanted something else and 11 o'clock show had finished and, and, and bits had finished and, and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, all right, let's see. And so that was kind of, you know, that was, that was nice to work with Ian. Um, he's, he's a very funny guy. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how it came along. Again, it was just sort of fitting the two of us into this, fitting the two of us into something that somebody else had dreamed of. Um, and that lasted, I think, for only two series. It did not last very long just because the prospect of it tried to make it a little bit more serious when, in fact, the two of us were a little bit more ridiculous than 
<laughs> than the scripts than the scripts allowed. Yeah, I remember uh, Ian Lee doing solid snake movements on the screen oh, and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> God, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, we got off to a bad start because um, he and I both reviewed um, DMA Design Games, the very first episode, and I think he slagged off Max Payne, I think it was, and I because he was like, "This is this is not that great," and I was doing possibly GTA Three. After GTA Three, I kind of lost interest in the GTA franchise because I preferred the earlier ones. And I was like, "Yeah, it's okay, but it's not really my scene." And they got really annoyed and refused to send us any games after that. Right. So we didn't really get off to a great start. <laughs> yeah. Well, that seemed to me like one of the last big kind of gaming shows on UK television. Um, do you think there'll be any yeah. more in the future? Well, I don't know. I truly don't know because I think that it's really been super served by the internet. I don't know. I truly, truly don't know because I think that there's also such a diversity of gaming that's out there. I would never, ever, ever say never because there's nothing to say that somebody isn't going to think of a brilliant idea. And I know that, you know, I do get occasional phone calls from people saying, hey, we want to do a games program and, you know, all this. And I say, I'm happy to consult, but I'm, I'm so far out of the scene now that there's no there's no way I could I could get back on street, on screen and with any credibility ask people to belief what I had to say about the computer games. Um, so occasionally things come up, but they seem to falter before they get commissioned. And I think part of that is because of the the, the anarchic nature of games and and sort of and and gameness hasn't it's never really sort of evolved into something that could even be like film 99 or whatever it is now film 2017. You know, it could it they're not they're not considered serious enough properties still, despite the the evolution and the content and the evolution in the treatment, um, they're not still not considered to be a, you know, serious enough. I know that documentaries are being made, but I don't, I don't know of any, I don't know of any, any sort of game programs that are, that are in the mix at the minute. Well, um, after that, you jumped into the world of academia and released uh, quite a few books and did uh, the great uh, Guardian Tech Weekly podcast as well, which we were big fans of. Oh, good. Yeah, it it was really nice. It was the second podcast of the Guardians experiment. And I'm super pleased to have been part of it because it really reminded me how much I love audio, how much audio is a really important part of my my life. And it's kind of great to look back now as well, because they have the early stuff like Twitter just first coming. And, mm-hmm. you know, you say so you can kind of hear the opinions back then and kind of compare it to nowadays and that's never going to take off yeah (laughs) exactly well what's really what was what i felt really honored to be part of with that is i was literally just the person asking the questions i wasn't really the expert at all and the people that i had the opportunity to ask the questions of were really you know they weren't just reporting on the technology they were again it was that kind of let's look to see the deeper story here you know jemima and 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 bobby johnson and Charles Arthur and, and Jack Schofield and Vic Keegan, all of these people, the, the opportunity to kind of, and, you know, Keith Stewart is an amazing journalist and computer. he's an extraordinary games journalist. I have so much time for listening to, to what he has to say about games because his is, I think, a really sophisticated approach to, to how computer games should be treated as an art form and, you know, as cultural artifact. And it was, I felt incredibly privileged to be the person who just got to be the stupid one and ask questions and, and see if I could draw out stuff that interested me that hopefully interested the the general population as well 
Well, you presented the virtual revolution as well, which was um, you know, the look at the change of the World Wide Web over like you know, two decades. Were you amazed at how much had changed when you look back right, right back to the beginning and looked at those memories? It's funny. When I was making the virtual revolution, it, it, was, it was perfect because it was, I, I literally handed in my thesis and then left to start filming um, and had the opportunity again to ask the questions of people whom I had referenced in my PhD. So by the time I sat my Viva... <laughs> Um, you know, if people, if somebody from my external asked me, why do I think Sherry Turkle um, intended this when she wrote this? I would say, well, because I, because I had the chance to ask her just not three weeks ago. Um, I would say that the extraordinary nature of it is how little people actually had originally expected of it. You know, it was the, the kind of the, the possibilities or endless phenomenon did not really come from the originators. It came from the people who were who were using it and analyzing it and, and really kind of thinking about it um, in, a, in interesting ways. And in the same way, I really didn't think much about what was happening when I was sitting in, you know, the Oberlin College library room 212 and trying to pull up pictures of Jarvis Cocker. I didn't really think about what that actually meant for humanity, meant for meant for community or our conception of community, and I didn't think about all of all of those things. It's just one of these one of these extraordinary things that has happened in our lifetime that allows us to see how much we as a as a population have evolved. Um, it's a communication medium, and, and one of my kind of my my key messages that I really try and get across in everything I do is that we we ascribe a lot of agency to the technology. We say that it, it does stuff to us or it doesn't do stuff to us or it makes us do this and that and the other. And that's not really fair to us as human beings. And it certainly isn't fair to the technology. You know, the, the, the political upheavals, the, the overwhelms, the economic systems that have crashed and, and, and been born out of, you know, out of the ashes, like a, like a Phoenix, the psychological concept of community, the, the sociological experience of, of being, you know, of being a person uh, online, those are all human phenomena. It's just that the technology makes them visible. And you know, you're, you asked if if I'm surprised by the by the changes and the transformations. I'm not because we're still humans. Like it it, it is still human. Um, and it's just it's just that it's expressed itself in a way that that people can see now rather than just make assumptions about. Well, in terms of communication as well, I mean, we were we were talking last week about. I think the earliest webcam, it was a, a still image that updated every five minutes of the University of Cambridge's coffee machine. And that was in black and white. And now you can do like, you know, full high definition video streaming like the other side of the world. It's crazy. Yeah, but that coffee machine is still online. <laughs> for real. I mean, it's extraordinary. We did, a, we did an episode of Digital Human for Radio 4. Uh, I think it was the last series. And it was about Jenny Cam. Yeah. Talk about good old fashioned retro. It was about Jenny Cam, a woman I've been obsessed with since 1997, or at least the phenomenon that I've been obsessed with. Um, and we talked about we talked about those cams, and we talked about the fact that you know cam girls was a was a moment in time. But you know, then we have different phenomena. We've got different we've got different social things that have that have arisen out of that that look very very similar. Um, and are doing exactly the same thing for a next generation who are discovering these amazing, these amazing communication tools, these amazing things. It was, so yeah, uh, I, a super high def thing looking at, you know, 
some extraordinary science that's that's happening under the ocean. It was called a uh, life casting back then, wasn't it? Rather that's than, right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, I remember like, Josh, Josh Harris as well. Just We Live in Public, he did that documentary as well. Yeah, oh yeah, super, super, super interesting. And that's all, that's all still happening. It's just happening at high def. Are you a believer in digital detoxing at all? Just getting away from it all sometimes? Uh, I think everything in moderation. You know, our lives have so deeply, deeply and intrinsically been... Um, been sort of have evolved with the machine uh, over the last 20 odd years that that it would be suicide as it were to to come offline but i also you know i don't carry my phone with me all the time um i have an analog clock in my bedroom <laughs> because i prefer to have that rather than sort of look at my phone first thing in the morning with its bright screen and that you know the the possibility of emails to answer um you know i just think that we have to be in charge of it it's again, it's not it's not getting us to sort of obsessively look at it. We are we as human beings are getting ourselves to obsessively look at it. And and yeah, I mean, I like I like going away from it from time to time. I think that that's that's perfectly valid. But then I can't say that for everybody, because some people have a very, very different relationship with their technology than I do. I, uh, I've been reading your Guardian articles as well. And uh, your very recent one as well about how we're kind of you know, losing the joy of things. I find that very interesting yeah. because as a retro podcast, we're finding a lot of people are getting back into vinyl, cassettes, tapes, older systems that were actual things because they feel that there's something kind of gone. You know? Yeah, there's something deliciously tangible about stuff and also really mundane stuff, you know, big stacks of National Geographics or, or old Singer sewing machines, neither of which have any financial value but they do still have an intrinsic emotional value for the people who who own them. And I think, you know, we we will lose. I think that we will lose something um, once we lose things altogether. I just, you know, even even the objects that, you know, the bed that I sleep in has has an emotional value to it. And, and sure, it's not like my cat. <laughs> like I'll be sadder when, you know, when and if my cat goes when because he's not he's not eternal um <laughs> that would be really freaky um but yeah we have we have this kind of we have these everyday objects that that have this amazing emotional patina upon them um and i think that's that's hugely valuable especially you know when when people die and then they are no longer there to to tell us what those objects were but we still have the the scent or the or the feeling or the memory of of them using those objects um, I also know that your cat's got a Twitter as well. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. Yeah, I haven't looked at it in a really long time. I have no idea. So he was set up. That Twitter account was not set up by me. I only discovered it when I was like when I was doing some research <laughs> for something else. I went, oh my god, my cat's got five thousand followers. I haven't looked at it in a long time, so I I don't think he's tweeted um, in the last probably since two thousand and ten. If he has. Wow, that would be really <laughs> quite weird. Well, Alex, we appreciate you coming on this week. It's been fascinating talking to you and getting a few of your memories. Thank you so much for that. Thank you guys very much for having me. And if people want to keep up to date with you, where can they find you online? Probably best place is alexkwiatowski.com or at, at alexk Excellent. on the Twitters. Thank lovely, you so much. Lovely speaking to you and getting back to those 90s memories. I know, I know. Well, we, do do, we also do a lot of that on Digital Human as well. So if you want to listen to Radio 4's Digital Human, that's... That's coming back, actually. That will be back in April. So oh, wow. Great. Yeah, we've got 18 episodes this year, so I'll be on your radios a lot. Yeah.